when they asked me to speak on, uh, it's not working. <laughs> there we go. When they asked me to speak on racial reconciliation for today, I pointed out that I spoke on this a few years ago, and they replied, don't worry, nobody will remember that. <laughs> when, I, when I chose Ephesians 2, but, but learned that my provost spoke on this yesterday, they replied, don't worry, nobody will remember that either. <laughs> when I told the provost I was going to announce that, he said, don't worry, nobody will remember that you used to teach here. So hopefully you won't remember what I just said. <laughs> but more seriously, it's providential that you get the passage from different angles in hopes that everybody actually will remember the message or the heart of the message. Uh-oh. There we go. Uh, <laughs> turning a little slowly. Okay. So when I first joined an African-American church, I thought that ethnic reconciliation and justice would be a great topic, but thought that it didn't come up much in the New Testament. But ethnic reconciliation, uh, maybe you guys are going to have to control it. It's, sorry. <laughs> ethnic reconciliation actually was a, a central issue in the New Testament church. It wasn't a matter of black and white. It wasn't a matter of Anglo and, and Latino. It was a matter of Jewish and Gentile and sometimes Jewish and Samaritan. But if that was the case, that God would surmount a barrier that he himself once established in salvation history, how much more would he summon us to surmount every other barrier that's been established merely by human sinfulness or human convention? So, for example, in, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul had to confront Peter over a segregated lunch counter. Or it's also a key theme in Romans. Like in Romans chapter 1, the Gentiles are damned. Romans chapter 2, Jewish people are damned too. Then he pleasantly summarizes in Romans chapter 3, everybody's damned. <laughs> if, you, if you think I cussed, look it up in a dictionary. <laughs> but in Romans 4, he, he brings it to another point, and that is, Many Jewish people believed that they were saved because they were descended from Abraham. And Paul reminds us that genetic descent from Abraham isn't enough. We need to be spiritually circumcised. We need to be spiritual children of Abraham. We need to have faith like Abraham had faith. And just in case anybody wanted to say that they were descended from Abraham, Paul reminds us in Romans 5, 12 through 21, that all of us are descended from the primeval sinner. And in Romans 7, for those who wanted to emphasize, hey, we have, the, we have the Torah, we have the law, Paul reminded us that even having the law doesn't save us. It teaches us righteousness, but it doesn't make us righteous by itself. So far, we've learned in Romans 1 to 3 is that everybody's equally lost, and therefore, in Romans 4 through 8, everybody has to come to God on the same terms through Jesus Christ. So now Paul comes to the heart of his argument, Romans 9 through 11. In Romans 9, God doesn't have to choose us based on our ethnicity. And lest we think that he's lecturing only the Jewish believers, in Romans chapter 11, he begins challenging Gentile Christians. He says God still has a remnant in Israel and still has a plan for his Jewish people to turn to him. But Paul is a good pastor, 
So after he lays the theological groundwork in Romans 1 to 11, he starts preaching. And in Romans 12, he reminds us that we're one body, we're called to serve one another. In Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, he reminds us that the heart of the law is loving one another, that we'll know we are Christians by our love. And then in Romans 14, Paul goes from preaching to meddling. He says, don't look down on one another's food customs or holy days. Well, these were two of the three things that Roman Gentiles looked down on Roman Jewish people for. The other was circumcision, which he's already dealt with. And then in Romans 15, he gives two examples of ethnic reconciliation, Jewish-Gentile reconciliation. Jesus, though Jewish, became a minister to the Gentiles. And Paul, a Jewish believer in Jesus, brings the offering from the Gentile churches to the Jerusalem church because he says the Gentiles owe it to them. And then in Romans 16, he has one closing exhortation, beware of those who cause division. Well, what kind of division do you think that the church in Rome may have been struggling with? A key theme of Romans is that Jesus is the only way of salvation, and a key reason for Romans is to address Jewish-Gentile division in the church. So we can learn a lot about ethnic reconciliation from Romans and other passages in the New Testament, but I don't have time to talk about Romans today. <laughs> so I'm going to go on to Ephesians <laughs> and talk about Ephesians and the New Temple. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 speaks of a dividing wall shattered by Jesus Christ. Now, what would Paul's audience know about a dividing wall? Well, the Old Testament temple didn't se segregate Gentiles from Israel. Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 prays for the Gentiles to feel welcome in the temple of God. But due to revised understandings of purity laws, by the time of Jesus' ministry, by the time of Paul, Herod's temple segregated Gentiles from Jews. The outer court was now divided into the court of Israel for Jewish men, the court of women on a lower level outside that, and then the outermost court, which was the only place that Gentiles could go. And nice welcome signs warned visiting Gentiles not to enter beyond this outer court. If you go beyond this point, they said, you will be responsible for your death, which will shortly ensue. So when we talk about you know, the, the different signs for whites only, for coloreds only. This has been going on for, for a long time in terms of ethnic segregation and sometimes even in religious institutions. Now, Paul ends up in trouble because of these welcome signs. And just stepping back a little bit for why he was being accused by some people, in Acts chapter 19, Paul split an Ephesian synagogue and Ephesian Jews got blamed for Paul's riot. They'd seen him now in Jerusalem with Trophimus, an Ephesian Gentile. They knew, okay, this guy's a Gentile. We've seen him with Paul. Paul's in the temple. Guess what? So they started a riot, accusing Paul of having brought this Gentile beyond that divining wall in the temple. For Paul, this was a great preaching opportunity. The crowd listened when he preached about Jesus, but he wouldn't leave out his call to the Gentiles and the riot erupted again, and Paul ends up in Roman custody. So Paul now writes Ephesians from Roman custody, and he, he calls himself in 
the, the next chapter, in Ephesians chapter 3, the prisoner of Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. Trophimus was from Ephesus. So were Paul's accusers. Ephesians was probably circulated beyond Ephesus, but that was probably the center of its audience. And so, um, I had to turn my page, sorry. I, I, everybody here knows I work nights, and so I only got four hours sleep last night. Uh, but the Ephesian Christians knew why Paul was writing to them from Roman custody. And for them and for Paul, there could be no greater symbol of this division between Jew and Gentile than this dividing wall in the temple. And Paul declares that it has been shattered by the cross of Jesus Christ. This was in the days before it was popular in any circles to discuss ethnic reconciliation. I mean, Paul goes around declaring in Christ Jesus there's neither Jew nor Gentile. It doesn't mean there's not differences culturally and so on, but that our unity in Christ has to be so much greater than anything else that divides us because if Christ is our Lord, everything else has to pale in comparison to that. A few years after Paul declares this, though, Jews and Syrians are massacring each other in the streets of Caesarea where Paul had just been in custody. And, and a decade later, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem's temple and enslaved its survivors. Where did Paul get this radical idea about a, a new temple in Christ? Jesus had earlier confronted a segregated temple. We, we already talked about the, the dividing wall there. Jesus cries out two texts as he overturns tables in the temple. Um, uh, this is too heavy for me to illustrate with. But anyway, um, <laughs> Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Always God's purpose had been that the temple would be a place that would glorify God among all peoples. And he also cries out uh, a line from Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11, the, the line about the robber's den. In Jeremiah chapter 7, God was saying, you, you think you, you're, you're free to commit all these offenses and then come into this house which is called by my name? Has this house become like a den of robbers in your sight? A den of robbers was where robbers stored their loot, thinking they were safe. And in that context, God goes on to say, I will do to this house that is called by my name as I did to Shiloh, declares the Lord. He pronounces judgment on the temple. And so Jesus is pronouncing judgment in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, on a segregated religious institution. Jeremiah smashed a pot in the temple to symbolize its imminent destruction. Jesus, even more dramatically, overturns tables. Could this have any implications for segregated religious institutions today? And when I say segregated, I don't mean that we don't each have our own cultures and so on, but segregated in terms of some places where people aren't fully welcome. <clears throat> um, in terms of segregated institutions, sometimes I can think of the politically and racially divided U.S. church. In Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, though, Paul comes to the climax of this chapter and describes a holy temple in whom you were built together, 
one new temple built of both Jew and Gentile together. Now, the expectation among some Jewish people was an end-time temple, a holy temple in which Gentiles would not be permitted. That's the view of the temple in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But that's not the idea that Jesus promoted or that Paul promoted. Well, where did Paul get an idea of a new temple? Well, that probably goes back to Jesus also because Jesus explicitly spoke of a new place of worship. Most women came to the well together, but one woman wasn't welcome with the other women. She had to come instead at the hottest hour of the day. Anyone who met her there would know that she was considered an outcast among her people. And yet Jesus asks her for a drink. No religious Jew would do that. Religious Jews considered all Samaritan women unclean from the cradle, even if they weren't outcasts. I mean, me, I don't like to, to drink after somebody, uh, but that's because I'm a hygiene freak. But uh, in, in this case, there were other considerations. There were two peoples separated by a history of division. Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim until Judeans destroyed their temple. Judeans worship in Jerusalem, and she knows that if, if the Judeans are right, she's toast. But Jesus says the true place of worship is not in Jerusalem or on this mountain, but the true place of worship is in spirit and in truth. So Jesus crosses three barriers in this passage, the ethnic or cultural barrier, John chapter 4 and verse 9, Jews don't deal with Samaritans. The, the moral barrier that he's crossing all through the Gospels and crossed to bring us to himself. And the gender barrier. In 427, the disciples were amazed that he was speaking with a woman. So I'm, I'm trying to, trying to um, uh, restrain myself because this stuff is all over the New Testament. Um, there was an allusion earlier to, to Revelation 5.9 and 7.9 about all peoples gathered before his throne. I mean, the whole book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is, is pushing God's people across cultural boundaries. That's the work of the Spirit uh, declared right up front in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 and, and through the end of Acts. But I know I'm supposed to stay with Ephesians. So coming back to, to Ephesians, Paul shows how Jesus' sacrifice has broken down ethnic barriers. And then in Ephesians 4, he calls us to preserve that unity that he already established. He did the work, but now to preserve it, there's something we need to do. Because Christians haven't always embraced this reality of what Jesus gave his life for. In contrast to fellow Christian leaders, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, who held slaves, John Wesley fiercely opposed slavery. Francis Asbury, of whose at least last name you may have heard at some point, his ministry, like, like Wesley's and Whitfield's, is rightly described as apostolic. He personally opposed slavery. He even petitioned George Washington to abolish it. He preached interracially. He affirmed African-American preachers. Yet he refused to take such a stand that it would split the church over slavery. So that can got kicked down the road till the 1840s. Meanwhile, for every hundred slaves who reached the Americas, some estimate that as many as 40 died in captivity 
before and during their transport on slave ships, nearly two million or around two million during the transatlantic voyage alone. To take a different example, many of the Cherokee people had become Christians and accepted white settler customs, which is a completely different issue. But the populist president, military hero, and fervent evangelical, Andrew Jackson, confiscated Cherokee towns and homes, ostensibly for border security, but also presumably for the profit of white settlers and speculators. An estimated 16,000 Cherokee men, women, and children were forced to march westward on the Trail of Tears through various states, including Kentucky, and a quarter of them died en route. Other indigenous peoples were also forcibly relocated. And about this forcible relocation, the famous frontiersman and Tennessee congressman, Davy Crockett, opposed the forced relocation, saying, lest he be ashamed on Judgment Day. I give this particular example. I mean, we could give all sorts of examples. Uh, you know from the news, just within the past week, and regularly in the news, if we're getting global news. This is an issue throughout the world in, in all, all cultures. My wife was a refugee in Congo during civil war there. It was an ethnic war. So this has all sorts of implications for, for humanity globally. But the principles have to be concretized in terms of the settings in which we live. And so in this country, an original sin of this country has been slavery. But I, I bring out the genocide against Native Americans because um, a few years ago I dreamed that God was pouring out the Spirit, revival was happening here, but that the depth of it would be tested by ethnic reconciliation. And then last month I dreamed about uh, the Spirit falling here in chapel, and, and I felt the Spirit, I came because the Spirit was being poured out here. And the Spirit was being poured out as we repented over our, of our complacency over, and therefore our unspoken complicity in, the dominant culture's mistreatment of others, including Native Americans. Whatever our ethnicity, if we're born-again Christians, we're a minority ourselves, and therefore we, we need to be committed to justice for, for all. During Reconstruction, Many African Americans were voted into Congress across the South. But in 1865 to 1877, during Reconstruction, in those 12 years, a couple thousand African Americans were lynched until enough votes were suppressed, even though they continued with lynching with 4,400 more lynched through 1950 uh, to, to try to keep things down. Only in 1967 did interracial marriage become legal in all 50 states, but Medina and I were too young to get married then anyway. <clears throat> Some people say, let bygones be bygones, neglecting how the past shapes the present. For example, the early 20th century southern mass migration of African Americans to northern cities for manufacturing jobs was met with white flight and withdrawal of those jobs. One comment online goes like this. The people who threw rocks at Ruby Bridges for trying to go to school are now upset that their own grandchildren might learn in school about them throwing rocks at Ruby Bridges for trying to go to school. Growing up in northern Ohio, I once thought that the civil rights movement had resolved all the issues of racism. My black friends knew better, 
but while I sympathized with them when they marched in protests, I didn't join them. Only years later, at the time of my deepest brokenness, did I become part of an African-American community and church that nursed me back to wholeness. By the way, you can see on the slides I used to have hair. <clears throat> I, I discovered that because of their heritage, they knew how to deal with pain in a way my white evangelical circles hadn't. And that's when I began to actually listen and hear their experiences. My friend Arthur, during, uh, he, he explained to me that during his first English class at Duke, he was the only African-American student in the class. The teacher called him aside after class, said, you need to drop this class. This was the first day of class. You need to drop this class. If you tell anybody I told you this, it'll be your word against mine. When um, Rodney King was videotaped being beaten by police in 1991, that was by no means the first time it had happened. It was widely talked about this was happening. It was just the first time it was caught on videotape and publicized. I was trying to lead a Bible study, and my students were like, no, we don't feel like a Bible study right now. We feel like a riot. I said, well, we're Christians. We need to make it a Christian riot. They said, how do you have a Christian riot? That kind of summarized our dilemma. <clears throat> but we did, we did join in a protest march, and I said, okay, I wasn't around. I was too young. I was like six or seven years old during the civil rights movement, but I had my Bible ready. If the police started shooting, I was going to charge forward in the front so I could be one of the first ones martyred. But uh, happily, uh, nobody started shooting. But my seminary colleague in a small southern town got a cross burned on his lawn. When I spoke up about racism, I got run out of that town. Medine, uh, when she went for a job in France, they, they, they heard her voice, she spoke perfect Parisian French. They said, yo, come in. She got there, they said, oh, you're black. No, 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 we don't hire blacks here. And uh, also, you probably know that the unarmed son of Donna Covington, our vice president of formation here, was gunned down in the street in Louisville, and the killer, who is known by name, never served a day in jail. Because some of us don't experience it, we may not see it, but we better not deny its reality. One body is a big theme in Ephesians, runs all through, all through the book. One new humanity, where one new humanity conformed to Christ's image instead of Adam's. And so, as, as one body in, in Christ, and this is a couple slides further, I'm skipping some. Uh, that, that's it. Uh, one body in Christ, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. In his flesh, he made both groups into one to create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. One body through the cross. So later on in the book, he talks about putting off the old humanity, what we were in Adam, and putting on the new in Christ, recreated in God's image. The new humanity that he talks about is Christ's body. And he talks about the price that Jesus paid to make us one. When my African-American pastor in the 1990s was preaching uh, to a, a mixed group on racial reconciliation, sometimes I 
felt the gift of prophecy. And at that point, I, I, I felt the gift of prophecy, but in a deeper way than I normally felt. It wasn't just the words coming, but I actually felt the pain of Jesus' body being torn apart. He gave his life to make us one. And if we love him, then no matter what it costs us, we have to work to preserve the unity that Jesus paid for, to humble ourselves, to take no offense, to listen and learn from those who've experienced it. This is how the world will know that you're my disciples, Jesus said, if you love one another. Our generation didn't cause racism, but we are responsible for what we do about the racism that exists. If we believe that Jesus changes hearts better than anything else can, we need to show that to the world. We need to preach the price Jesus paid, practice the power he provided his people against prejudice, and next time we break the bread of his body, we need to remember the price that he paid to make us his one body. At this point, just before we sing our last song, um, I'd like us to pause and pray as a community. We've moved in this passage from the dividing wall to one body. And I feel like that's the desire of our hearts, but not the reality of our world. So I just want to give you a few moments in silence. Where do you see the dividing walls? Where can we move? to one body. Let's pause in silence and then I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we see dividing walls in your world, in your church, God, in our midst. And so we pray with Paul that you would join those walls with a cornerstone and build something new today. Lord, we long to be one body whole before you. Jesus, your body was broken so that we could be made whole. I pray for each person listening in this room, those who will listen in other spaces. God, call us to be remembered to each other as the members of your body. Call us, Lord. Push us, pull us, nudge us, but don't leave us divided. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.
This closing hymn, Lift Every Voice and Sing, was written in 1900 by the team James Weldon Johnson, who may be a familiar name to you, and his brother. And much to their surprise, it began to travel all over this country and soon became known as the Black National Anthem. Many of us don't know it. It's a powerful, powerful song. And the seminary singers, have we've learned it. And uh, we're going to help you. What I love about all of you is that you're eager to learn a new song. Uh, some of you may know it, and I pray that you do. But if you don't, just join in. Let's stand. Angie's going to lead us.
And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may not have known that song coming in, but it is the song of all of our hearts sung together. I don't know that you have a picture of how beautiful you were singing that song together with one voice. Today, as you go, find a wall to knock down. There's a table here that you can come forward to sit at, to experience the body and blood of Christ. We'll end this service, begin our service of daily Eucharist here. Reverend Michael Yang will be leading us at the table. As you go, possibly to cafeteria, class, home, office, wherever you're going today, walk from the place of dividing walls to the place of one body. The price that Christ paid to unify his body is a price that all of us long to understand and grasp. As we move into the season of Lent next week, we'll walk the path trying to understand that price. But as we go, we are Christ's body, friends. We are being remembered one to another with Christ at the center. He is our peace, our hope, and our Lord. Go in his name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.